Welcome to Abolition Liberation Solidarity, a Here for the Kids production. We are an abolition movement dedicated to fighting the systems of oppression that stem from white supremacy, including gun violence, climate catastrophe, houselessness, and oppression of all kinds. I'm Syra Rao, your host and co-founder of Here for the Kids. According to today's guest, America now has two strategic exports, our military and Hollywood. Our armed forces intervene in conflicts around the world, and our entertainment industry makes those invasions palatable, even heroic, to the general public. Mateen Malawizada has an interesting take on the intersection between military force and propaganda. He was born and raised in Afghanistan and moved to the U.S. as a teenager. He is now a celebrity makeup artist who has climbed the ranks of the New York and Hollywood entertainment scenes. His work has appeared on the covers of Vogue, InStyle, and Vanity Fair. He works red carpets, high-profile interviews, and TV shows. His client roster over the years has included Meryl Streep, Angelina Jolie, and Cynthia Nixon. Mateen has been watching the Israeli genocide of Palestinians and sees a lot of parallels to his family's own experiences in Afghanistan. He has taken to social media to call this out. After he began posting, he lost work and friendships. Mateen is also the founder of Afghan Hands, a nonprofit that helps Afghan widows increase their independence and literacy. He's got quite the story to tell, and it is my pleasure to welcome Mateen to Abolition Liberation Solidarity. Hello, Mateen. Hi, Syrah. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. All right. Look, you and I have had a couple chats, and I think, first of all, you're fascinating and wonderful, and I just want to get right to it. So like many of us, um, I feel like your life can be split into a pre-October 7th version and a post-October 7th version. So why don't we start with your pre-October 7th version? Tell us about your life on October 6th. Well, my life pre-October 7 was pretty busy with work, which was a wonderful thing. But also, I've always been more into social justice, gun control, things like that uh, in the past. And I've been posting more about that than beauty. To me, Instagram is a slice of everything we think about. And I look at it as a magazine. If I'm looking at somebody's page, I don't want to see the exact same thing over and over and over. And, and that's how I modeled mine from the very beginning. So mine was never really a beauty page, and I never wholeheartedly just dedicated the page to a portfolio. I don't believe in that. I do have a portfolio. It's a link. If people want to see my work, they can see it there. But you know, with social justice, whenever you post something, you, of course, get backlash here and there. And it's been benign for the most part in the past. And that also goes to, you know, the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan, the couple of wars that we've had in Palestine since, you know, before October 7, um, which I've posted about. So you get you get a lot of backlash from people that are sympathetic to the Zionist cause and they, you know, they align themselves with it. So you get you get a lot of that, which is normal to me. But I must say after September, af- after October 7, the story was very different. It, the backlash was violent. It was extremely aggressive. It was very bullyish, and, and it was heartbreaking to see that sh- that there's such a polarized sides that cannot see eye to eye. So that that really upset me. And uh, especially at the beginning, I I tried to post on my stories both sides. So if there was like a mental health organization that worked with Palestinians, I would always post a mental health organization that dealt with um, Israelis and, and their trauma. 
So, you know, I, I always try to, to see both sides of it. And of course, as the war progressed, it was the Palestinians that were paying the price more and more. And they were being more and more, well, I mean, obviously, they were being obliterated. So I posted more, just showing the war. I'm anti-war. I'm not pro either. I'm not Palestinian. I'm not Israeli. So to me, it's about human justice. It's about human rights. It's about what's right. And it's about the war profiteering. Because at the end of it, with my life, as I've seen the wars in my country and then watching the wars going and hopping from region to region with the war industry, the American war industry moving with it, I know what it is all about. I know it's all about profiteering. I know it's all about money. Honestly, American government wouldn't give a shit if a bunch of Jews and Muslims kills themselves in Asia. <laughs> At the end of the day, if they're making money off of it, good for the, you know, that's, that's what they, they look for. I've always voiced that. And um, unfortunately, the way, and not all of them, but a lot of the Jewish bodies in America, they align themselves with Israel, which I never understood uh, why and, and, and I never understood how until I watched a film, Israelism film. And that was the first time that I kind of like, wow, this it really is indoctrination at a, at a highest level. And these are children being indoctrinated and children being fit information that is very dangerous and it, it's very disservicing. I mean, I don't know how parents are not aware that their kids are being used that way. Well, they are, right? Because they were also. Oh, they, I mean, of course, yeah. You know, it, it's no different than white children in America at very young ages calling black kids the N-word or telling kids who look like us to go back to your country. Yeah. It's because their parents are also indoctrinated. It's supremacy indoctrination is the same anywhere, right? I, exactly, exactly. You know, but for me, it was like, you know, these are seemingly educated people. They have gone to colleges. They have graduate degrees. They are functioning beautifully in everyday life. I never understood why they were so myopic about their views of this politics. Because otherwise, they're very liberal in any other ways. They were very involved in BLM movement, and they were they were active and vocal about it. Um, they all had their black squares on, and they had uh, maybe the signs, as you said on your book, until Halloween came. So it was, um, you know, it was that performance was there the entire time, and I never saw through all of that. And I have to say, thanks to your book, I read a few books on on racism in America and around the world, and. It was very intellectually stimulating and, and fascinating, but it didn't speak what we're going through every single day. And I have to say, you and Regina hit something. First of all, the language of your book was so accessible. It was as if a friend was telling you their stories, which was exactly that. And I think that's how we connected because I posted about your book. By grace of God, I stumbled into it after a friend of mine told me to go, you know, not to go back to my country, but a friend told, uh, an ex-friend told me that if I was so critical of American politics, why did I choose to be here? Um, and I really didn't have, during the phone conversation, I've never thought about this. And I never, I really didn't construct an answer because I, as you can see, I pass in a way. People don't know what I am. So I am privy to a lot of conversations that really shouldn't happen in front of me, but it does. And people don't watch themselves on what they say. And, you know, the same friend at the same breath keeps saying the black influencers and the black models are bullying makeup artists that are Israelis or they're Jewish or they're... And I'm like, 
what? And these are, you know, big accounts. And then and the same thing, you know, she told me about Huda Beauty that is about to be pulled out of Sephora. And she's been very anti-Semitic. And I've never followed her before. And I ended up following her and fell in love with her. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, she's just telling the truth and she's not anti-anything. She basically is pro-human rights. And so this is an important point, Mateen. And then I want to get back to this former friend. I just want to clarify the use of the word war because you said I'm anti-war. And I think at this juncture, we have to be very specific with our language. Anti-genocide. Because what we are witnessing is a genocide. And if the Palestinians were genociding Israelis, we would all be calling out against the genocide of Israelis. And that is where we all come. We come from this place of a pro-human rights. This is a human rights issue. And the fact that people are saying if you are pro-Palestinian life, that if you're anti-genocide of Palestinians, you're anti-Semitic, that is intellectually dishonest. And it's extremely violent. And it, there's a long history of this. Is And it's it's always, for the most part, it's geared towards black and brown people. And that's weaponized in a very racist way. It's to ruin our lives. It's to inflict violence on us. Because the minute you say somebody's anti-Semitic, you're allowed to wipe them off the earth, yeah. apparently, right? However, what's interesting, not interesting, even scary, is even Jewish folks who are saying, and there are lots of Jewish folks who are anti-Zionist. And we'll, we'll use Zionism. I think we can have a shared understanding that Zionism is being pro-state of Israel, ethno-state of Israel. Jewish folks who are saying, no, 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 they are being called anti-Semitic. And I saw something yesterday where it's like, oh my God, Jamal Bowman, who's a black member of the squad, came out and called Norman Finkelstein, a Jewish man who, who has ancestors who survived the Holocaust, called him anti-Semitic. And I'm like, now there are non-Jewish people calling Jewish people anti-Semitic. Like, it's a mess. It's a total mess. I think this kind of weaponization in a fascistic sense, it's not an old thing. I mean, it's a, it is an old thing in a way, but there's legitimate anti-Semitism, of course. Of course. Let's put it this way, that the right Christian wing people, they, they are all anti-Semitic in every sense of the way. But they are right now, they're pro Zionist. Yeah, they're all Zionists. Biggest number of Zionists are Christians. Exactly. So, this weaponization, the danger of it is not only to the black and brown people that are being labeled or white people that are anti Zionism and uh, Zionist and getting labeled. You know, what I'm afraid of is the weight of that word doesn't mean anything anymore. It's getting lost. And when the real anti Semitism starts, yeah. which can happen very, very fast. Um, at the rate that we're going in this country, then they won't have a finger to point because everyone is against them by that time. I know. It's terrible. And that's why so many of these groups like JVP are saying the most anti-Semitic thing you could do is carry out an ethnic cleansing in our names. Yeah. Um, and, that's, and that's what's happening. Okay. So I want to go back to this friend because you and I talked about her. And I think this was the beginning of the bullying. What you said at the top of the hour here is the, the blowback post-October 7th was violent and bullying. So can you tell me what like what activated her? What 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 was your post that sent her, you know, into this go back to your country? Um my post was about this pro settler woman. I cannot remember her name, something Vice, I think. She's very vocal in Israeli media. I posted a clip of her advocating for eradication of 
Palestinian land and putting settlements everywhere, including Gaza and the West Bank. And she basically was quoting biblical quotes of, you know, this land is, it's basically promised by God, it's ours and nobody else should live in it. And it was very, very right-wing, extremist, insane claim. So I posted that clip. It was from a news channel from Israel that, you know, I was saying, this is what's happening, people. She thought posts like that create anti-Semitism. My response was, no. Posts like this shows Zionism, not Judaism. First of all, a lot of the Jews, they believe that Israel shouldn't even be a country. Exactly. Because according to Torah, they're supposed to be living in every nation. Yeah. You know, when you look at it, it has nothing to do with Judaism. They're taking one part of Judaism and making it their own, just the same way as ISIS is claiming that they're Muslims. Yeah. You know, so it's the, the, the entire hijacking of an entire religion by a country, uh, by an ethnostate, and by a political ideology to me is not only dangerous, the hold of it is very dangerous. Yeah. It's dangerous for every Jewish person that lives in the world. Because at the end of the day, these kind of wars and these kinds of violations of, of human rights and humanity will create true anti-Semitism. And they can put all the Jews in the same box as the Israeli government. So this Zionism, or, or now I like to call it after the film, Israelism is such a big movement that they have infiltrated every single Jewish home in America. And they have taken their identity hostage just by identifying as a Jew or a Jewish person by by blood, even if you're not practicing, it automatically equates you to your allegiance to Israel, whether you have it or not. So that can be very dangerous because Israel is a country. It has its own political views. It has its own political stance. And if you're not from there, you really shouldn't be meshed into that mess. Well, it's the same as Hindu nationalism and and Islamic nationalism and Christian nationalism. It's so da- it's it's all the stuff is sweeping the world. Okay, a couple questions. So we know that folks who are speaking out against Israel are being targeted in every field, publishing media, Hollywood, and you're in Hollywood. What about folks who are openly speaking out pro-Israel? Are they being targeted? Because we're seeing people like Amy Schumer and Sarah Silverman and Chelsea Handler and Michael Rappaport. My goodness. You know, Jerry Seinfeld is is holding guns with the IDF in Israel. Like, are they also being targeted or are they okay in Hollywood right now? Uh, Not only okay, they are actually getting offers and they're getting paid for posts. A lot of them are paid posts. A lot of them, at the beginning, I had the privilege of looking at some shared emails that came in through a PR firm that basically offered paid posts. And the bigger celebrity you were, the bigger paid you got. But this is, I'm talking about like a base pay of $5,000 for a post pro-Israel. Who was offering that? It was a PR firm. Oh my God, I hadn't heard this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was a, a, a big thing that was going around. And, you know, it was never, it never saw the light of the day because people were too scared to actually name sources. But it was, it was coming from a PR company and someone that I know and that world sent it to me. And it was shocking. And then I did see posts that would live for like a few weeks and then they would disappear. And these were influencers that were that, that were yeah. actor wannabes and they couldn't make it in that world, but now they're making money off of Instagram. So they were posting. So not only they're not being chastised, they're actually being offered money and roles 
and celebrate it in Hollywood or in, in that world, at least, while people that are actually talking the truth or, or, or talking about human rights, they're being criticized or canceled. People that I work with, thankfully, they are pretty well established and they, <laughs> how do I say, they don't need Hollywood money because they have made their money already. Um, so they are, they, ha- they are at the liberty to speak out. But I get a lot of DMs from younger actors that are not established yet. They're terrified of saying anything. So they're staying quiet. And the same goes with my group of people, the makeup and hair. We have been targeted badly. We've been bullied. The DMs are just horrendous. Like the bullying is so bad that sometimes I'm like, do you really think that will make me pro-Israeli if you bully me like that? Can you share examples? It starts very mild. So I, I reposted a story and San said, oh, you're posting from this account. I'm very confused. Are you pro-Hamas? Now, being pro-human rights or being pro-Palestinian life, civilian life, has nothing to do with Hamas. And this person knows me. Like, this person is, is a PR person that knows me. I basically said, how dare you say that? You know me. You know I came from a country that was torn apart by terrorism. No, this has nothing to do with Hamas. It has to do with Palestinian children dying. And then it got aggressive to a point of like, you'll never work in this in this field again. Yes. You know, of course, a lot of it is hot air. And, and, and you know, with the swing of things, you know, right now, the media in the, the world might be swinging towards Israel. But imagine if the ICJ thing sticks, which is a, it's a big, big if because of the powers at play, not the sentiment of the people. If that swing stores Palestinians, then all of these people would be clamoring to a hundred percent. So it's so that's the that's the problem, uh, and that's that's where the hypocrisy is. And 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 then I have other friends that are in my field. One of my closest friends is a Jewish girl that was indoctrinated. She was actually very helpful for me to navigate through the bullshit that I was getting. You know, with with the same standard answers on comments and DMs. And I'm like, am I imagining, or is this coming from a scripted place? She's like, it is coming from a script. It's scripted. Yeah, it's scripted. It was really interesting to learn all of this. I never learned any of this prior to October 7 because none of this was exposed. Yeah. But, you know, it's heartbreaking that it took 30,000 people to die for people to get a glimpse of the corruption in this country. In a war. In there. In an entire war. And still, people are quiet. People are still not talking. But, you know, at least... I think there's a shift of consciousness. There's a shift of reality. I mean, my God, you look at the face of uh, Motaza Zeza, or you look at the face of that grandfather Khalid. Um, I know. And then you know. look at and then you look at the Israeli uh, soldiers getting their eyebrows waxed and their nose hair removed before going to war just to look cute to make TikToks. You realize where the compassion is and where the reality is and what beauty is. That is really shifting. That that narrative of anything white being good is debunked now. That's right. That the power of that is gigantic. Okay. So something you said in the first conversation we had a couple months ago, to what is time? It might have only been a month ago. As someone you are from Afghanistan, you said the thing that has been very traumatic for me is that we always thought that when Americans learned about the lies, not just the violence that America does to the world, black and brown world, but the lies 
that the American government feeds to you all, that you would just up, there would be a revolt, there'd be an uprising. And now we're watching it. We're watching the lies of America and Americans are not doing that. Can you talk about that from the perspective of your life in Afghanistan and just tell us about how you got here and, and when you learn that firsthand about how corrupt America is? I'm a, I'm a refugee of war. I never wanted to leave my country. No one wants to leave their country if they're at war, if they're not at war. So there's a reason. There's either a political reason because they don't agree with their government or there's a, there's a war or there's a persecution or economic reasons. Nobody chooses to live. If we could have the same life in our country, we would gladly be there. I never wanted to be in the West. I, I actually, my first uh, stop was India. I wanted to go to uh, Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi. I even applied. I was going and uh, auditing classes because my guru, my cousin, she was a professor there and she was, uh, she's a professor of Sanskrit in, um, in uh, English. So I would go with her and just watch these classes. And uh, I wanted to go there, but my father shipped me to America and my, my sister applied for us. We ended up in California. You know, the first three or four years is a blur. I honestly have pushed it so far back in my head that I don't remember scenes. I don't remember uh, events. I remember watching, I think I told you this story. I, I was uh, on Facebook once back in the day, and there was a picture of me tagged with a bunch of guys that we were like hugging each other and taking a picture together. So clearly we were close at that time. I had no recollection of any of them or the space, or the party, or the event. I mean, absolutely nothing. Uh, I removed myself so much in order to integrate. And it was a very painful integration because to me, in order to survive, I mean, I had to kill a part of myself uh, in order to survive here because I was very religious. I was very spiritual at that time. And I was very, I was very Afghan culturally. And the values didn't match. In order to survive here, it was very hard. I had to be either isolated and live the way I was brought up or give up my values and try to integrate and survive here. And it was a very difficult internal war. And I'm sure a lot of us immigrant kids go through this because it really is like living a bipolar life in a way because your lives are so separated culturally that you're one person at home and you're another person and you're Muslim, right? That When you say you were religious, you were Muslim, or you are Muslim. I'm Muslim. I mean, I grew up in a, in a Sufi type of um, setting, but still I was, you know, I was, I identify, I still identify as Muslim. You know, it was a very conscious, painful decision to make. And I've gone through a lot of these conversations with friends that, that have come here, and, and women have harder time because their expectations are a lot higher from them. So they, in order for them to survive, they really live two very separate lives than they're, you know, one in one a family life and one outside. So it's, um, you know, it gets harder and harder. But that was the decision I made. And then I, I went to school. I learned a little bit of English. I, I learned it from TV mostly. I would watch TV from like 3 a.m. till 8 a.m. and then go to school. And it was all uh, old movies like I Love Lucy and things like that. And then there was cartoons. And that's how I learned how to converse in English because ESL would take years to learn. So that was my that was my thing. But of course, watching TV in the middle of the night, I gained a lot of weight. I wasn't paying attention to fashion or to how I looked because I was a student. I wasn't a model. I wasn't an actor. You know, <laughs> looks wasn't important to me. And then summer came in and I started, I didn't have classes. So I started running just for mental health. 
I lost about 40 pounds that summer, wildly, because I kept, I loved running so much that I became a long distance runner for many years. And I went back to school. So I had a new haircut and I had to buy new clothes. And I went from being completely invisible and only having one black friend. And I have to give her kudos, Shireen Goodman. I'm still in touch with her. She lives in Chicago. She was the only one who could see me to being the most popular boy in college. And the girls that wouldn't literally be on me if, if I was on fire, they were sitting on my lap and feeding me. So it was that kind of a weird thing that shifted my brain that, oh, and my sister always says that. It, it, she's like, if you want to fit in in America and be like, you lose five pounds and get a new haircut. <laughs> so pathetic. Pathetic, right? And that, but it, but it, you know, as a 17 and a half, 18 year old child, it shifted something in my head that's like, oh, wow, nobody gives a shit about who you really are internally. It's all about what you look like in this country. So it, that, it did become a focus and I did focus on fashion and I ended up in fashion and, and in this world. But that was the first glimpse of how we are trained in America to be literally from here up. Only visual. It, it really didn't matter what was in the heart, what was, what was in the character, what was in the deeds, as long as you looked the right part. And you looked, you looked white Western standards of beauty. No, when I'm thin, I could have like chiseled features and whatever. It's like you know, when I had hair then. So it was really wild to to kind of go into to that kind of shift from one to another. So that that was the beginning of of what visual representation means to Americans. And then I saw, you know, Afghanistan went through the war. Uh, I remember Mujahideen took over and uh, the Russians were ousted. Mujahideen took over. They were civil, civil wars. They were literally killing each other from one side of Kabul to the other. And they were raping women. One ethnic group was raping the other as, as a war strategy. And I remember reading in San Francisco Chronicle that women were throwing themselves from taller buildings because of the fear of being raped or being raped. And that was the time that I shut down and I said, okay, these are not my people. I don't recognize any of this about my people, about the people that I grew up with. And I said, until I can go back to Afghanistan and actually do something, I'm never going to read about it again. Because I was, I, I was sick for like five days, four or five days. I didn't go to work. I didn't go to school. After that, I kind of shut all of it down until the Taliban took over and Afghanistan was back in the news. At the beginning, it was hopeful because they brought um, security. They outlawed guns. They collected all the guns from people in the city. And uh, there was security. Women were secure. But it came at such a high price that women couldn't even go outside uh, without chaperones. And, and they were beating people and they were executing in, in stadiums. So that was another blow that I'm like, okay, these are not my people either. So I'm just, I'm peopleless, basically, and homeless. And, and I'm, you know, in a foreign country. That's when I became an American citizen. What year is that? Oh, gosh. That was... Maybe 98, 99. Okay. And by this time, I was already here for many, many years. I mean, I, I, I never, yeah. because I never, yeah. I never saw myself as living here for the rest of my life. I always hoped to go back. But then I was like, okay, I have to make home somewhere. And this is, I've spent more time here than there. I ended up becoming a citizen. And also, you know, I couldn't travel with an Afghan passport. So I, right. I was being asked to go and do videos in London. And, you know, it would take me four days to get a visa for a day yeah. in London. Yeah. So it was just such a pain in the ass that I ended yeah. up becoming a citizen. So 
after that, sorry, it's such a long-winded story. That's okay. It's interesting. After that, when the Taliban decided to be anti-America after September 11 and refused to give up Osama, which was basically a CIA operative before that, and, and they, they refused the pipeline for the Americans to, mind you, Clinton administration brought all of the Taliban's to Washington, D.C. for an agreement on a pipeline that went through Afghanistan all the way to the Indian Sea. So when that propaganda started and the Americans sided with, which I knew was Mujahideen, but they were uh, packaged differently and they were called Northern Alliance this time. Mm -hmm. In Northern, what the fuck does that mean? Uh, What does that imply in English? And then I would go to work in the studio and all of these men and women, they would be like going ooh and eyeing about how cute Afghan men are and these Northern Alliance guys are so hot. <laughs> Honestly, because I've been watching the news and I'm like, what is that? What are they talking about? And then I watch CNN, I watch BBC and I watch looking at these guys every time they talked about Northern Alliance. It would be a sandy haired guy with green or blue eyes with the pakol worn like a beret scruff, um, in fatigues, cute, really cute boys. This is during grunge era, which everybody wore army pants. And and, I mean, they look like fashion models, you know, in New York. Ah, that's when the light bulb went on. I'm like, oh, that's what it is. They are selling them. These are the same rapists that rape, literally raped the country. And now they were with Americans again for the second time. And they were packaged as Northern Alliance and they were hot, hot model Northern Alliance, blondish, sandy, (laughs) uh, beautiful boys, which if you knew Afghanistan, there's such a mix of coloring, no matter what region you're from. Yeah. Same with India. Like India. Yeah. The same. So you get anything from a very light skin to a very dark skin. Uh, I mean, these are ancient countries. Every- but they're not showing the dark-skinned dudes look, on CNN. Look, they would show them. Yeah. If they were talking about Taliban. They would show the dark-skinned ones. They show them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Northern Alliance is light with blue and green eyes. Yeah. The Taliban is dark. Yeah, yeah. like us. So that was the, the aha moment for me that I, I really saw the racism, the way it should. And I, 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 even then, I didn't label it as racism. Honestly, I never saw the blatant racism across the world until I read your book. Even when I read Cast, I would still, you know, I would see glimpses of it. But with your book, you and Regina minced it so well that, I mean, now I look at everything under white supremacy lens. It's going to be to my detriment, but it's going to, but it really opened my eyes. The devil's in the details. And it gave it a context and a language that I didn't have before. So now when I even think back, I'm like, wow, that was such a racist move and such a racist propaganda. And then I noticed that every time there was a clash between Israelis and Palestinians, the same thing. If they showed Israelis, they would be blonde, blue-eyed, model-looking Eastern European girls uh, and boys. And then every time they showed Palestinians, they showed really dark skin, beards, you know, turbans or keffiyeh around the head, exotic, non appealing to American sensibilities. That's when it became such an apparent thing that they are selling sympathy every time they want to start a war with someone. Okay. So with that, hold on. You said something the other day 
And I just want to make sure we capture it because you're about to talk about war, about what America does in terms of starting wars and how it's essentially a criminal enterprise and how you witness that. What I think you said it was 2004 when you were in back in Afghanistan. If you could tell us about that. Sure. America doesn't have any other exports. They, they have no industry anymore. So the only thing, even tech is not, we're not on top of the food chain when it comes to tech, right? China definitely has, has that. Um, so the only thing that we offer is war. They, whatever industry complex, blah, blah, blah. It's still warfare, basically. We, we offer warfare and we offer Hollywood, which is a big hand in American propaganda. These two are the only exports that we have. It's the only money makers. And war, I didn't know about this until I went back to Afghanistan in 2004. And I mean, 2004 people were, and I'm not exaggerating, they were, I went there right before the New Year's, which is March 20th in Afghanistan. And in March 20th, people were dancing on the streets, on the streets, music blaring from their cars, and they were dancing. There was music everywhere. People were happy. People were walking around. And by 2006, there was not even a whisper of Taliban or insurgents or roadside bombings or any of it. They were cleaned up. And then slowly I saw news coming back. Every time I went there, there would be an explosion here. There would be an explosion there. There would be a suicide bombing here. And I saw the security deteriorating and more and more security deteriorating. And then I realized I was hired to do a project with an American company for 10 days. And I I wasn't allowed to walk around on my own in my own country. I had to go with security guards, uh, armed security guards in an armored vehicle with literally an antenna that, that spanned like four floors. I'm like, okay, so you just, why don't you just put a target on my back for people to shoot me if, you know, I mean, this is not security. This is ridiculousness. And mind you, these people are getting paid that are going shopping with me. And I realized their salaries for foreign security officers, they get easily from twenty-five dollars to $250,000 a month. And then the people that are working in the industry, the expats that are going back to reconstruct with the billions of dollars that went to Afghanistan for reconstruction, Maybe 2% of it got pocketed by the Afghan government. The rest of it literally comes back into American banks because these are all expats that are working there. The money goes into to those projects, whether it's agriculture, and that's another thing that you wouldn't believe. This is an example. They're starting a chicken farm. Instead of doing it the right way with organic chickens, with organic feed, they bring in GMO, they bring in factory farming, to a country that doesn't need that. We don't have that kind of, we don't eat 20 ounces of meat per meal. There's no reason for it. And I saw that. I saw how they manipulate failed practices in the West and bringing it over there and making that happen. And the money, again, it's all these all these consultants that are making money. The money gets pocketed and brought back into American banks. And it was such a big way of, looking at this and realizing that it's money laundering. It's nothing more and nothing less. So they create war. Then they create these contracts that are, I think it's one and a half year and then six years. So it's like reconstruction and then something else. So it's a two-phase thing. 
for every war zone. It's war. So we create a war. We create a war. Then we create these industries for reconstruction. And then we create these other industries in order to sustain the country for a while. And meanwhile, we're making it completely aid dependent because we don't really encourage local businesses thriving the same way unless it's dependent on American seeds. Well, you know, this controversy in India with, with what they did to the farming. So it's, it's that kind of the Monsantos and all of these that goes in there. So we, we make them dependent completely. And that's white saviorism. So we create, the white folks come in, we create the problem, then we, we fix the problem. So then black and brown people in their own countries need to be so grateful for white America to come swoop in and save the day. And that's why white saviorism is, is white supremacy. Yeah. They're giving seeds for, for five years for free, and then they have to buy seeds. But the seeds that their crop cannot produce any crops because the seeds are GMO and they don't bear fruit. The seeds are it's seedless products. Um, so they say that's just one aspect of it. So when we're talking about road building, we're talking about bridge building, we're talking about every industry you can think of, they had a hand on. And then they had expats working there. So I noticed the first wave of the expats that I met in Afghanistan because there was only like three or four cafes or restaurants that expats aggregated in Afghanistan at the beginning because nothing was available. The interesting thing about that was that all of these people that I met in these cafes, we became acquaintances and we started following each other on Facebook back then. And I saw them after their contract was over and the war in Iraq started. Remember, in the middle of war in Afghanistan, they started war in Iraq. And then Syria, Darfur, and I saw these groups going, like literally migrating from war to war to war. And that's when I realized that this is an industry. It's not saving these countries. It's an industry of purely making money. And destroying and destroying. And when you said that, I mean, it really clicked in my mind. And when you said, and Hollywood, the two industries and how Hollywood actually supports the war industry because even if you're looking at now like what kids are marvel it's just it's it's basically marvel captain america yeah and and even like friends which has made this huge comeback right it's like america is either the most powerful it's the most powerful valiant and it's cute everything is meat cute everything is super fun and upbeat and we are going around the world protecting the world so the rest of the world could have this cute, fun existence of America while we actually are just death and destruction everywhere. It's bananas. Yeah. And when you see it, and that's what is happening right now, Mateen, I believe, is the world is finally seeing it for what it is. Look, I saw that after Afghanistan, after the pulling uh, of the troops of Afghanistan, Biden went on TV saying, and I remember this because it's seared into my brain that America is done with unending wars in the Middle East. Those were his words. And then the hasty exit from Afghanistan and handing it back to the same terrorist that they liberated it from made no sense at all. You know, making deals in Doha without any group of other Afghans being involved. So between that hasty withdrawal, Biden going for nine years to Ukraine before that, Several times. I can't remember the name, I, uh, the number. I read an article that how many times he has gone to Ukraine in order to create what's happening there. Then Zelensky bombing for eight years, Donbass and Donetsk. My partner is from Donetsk. I, I've been on FaceTime with his family and 
you could hear bombs dropping. Yeah. So we had to evacuate his mom. I'm in the middle of the Ukrainian war. So it's like I, I, I know it intimately. Right. Then I saw Zelensky doing that for a solid eight years before Russia invaded Ukraine. Right. And then, oh, this is the most genius war ever because we are laundering the money, we're selling the arms, but American boys and girls are not dying. I know. I mean, it's the most genius, evil way to create a war that you would still sell as much as you want as you did in Afghanistan, but this time you don't have troops on the on the ground. Yeah. And they milked it for, for two or three years, and now the war on gas. Right. 140-something billion, are you kidding me? It's absolutely wild. It's basically, it's just money laundering and, and being a middleman for gun manufacturers. That's what it is. I mean, it's all white supremacy. It's all gun violence. Whether you're looking at it at a school shooting or mass shootings in America, 90% of it is done by white men that have a grudge on whatever, for whatever reason. And then, you know, buying guns, selling guns in America, selling guns overseas. It all kind of comes in the same place. A hundred percent. And that's why when we talk about uh, at Here for the Kids, that the same money that's manufacturing the mass death of kids in America is what's manufacturing the mass death of Palestinian kids. So you got to be connecting the dots. It's all the same stuff. And Ukrainians and Russians and Afghans, well, Pakistanis, uh, Iran. All of it. Because there's only so many manufacturers. Yep. And whether you're yep. pulling it in from black market or directly from the country, it all benefits the same people at the end of the day. 100%. They don't care if the terrorists are buying their weapons. They just want to make money. I mean, 70% of the arms that are going to Ukraine are sold in black market. Who do you think are buying it? It's wild. As long as somebody buys it and they make their money. Right. Totally. So that's, we come to that. And I remember during Afghanistan, I have a dear, dear client that really is one of the few people that I can confide to and talk to. And we talked about this and I kind of brought that up, this money laundering scheme. And she was... In disbelief, she's like, there's no way. There's there's no way that America could get away with this. And it's not out in the news. I'm like, I'm telling you, I've seen it. I'm observing it. I, I lived it. She's like, let me do some digging. Let's do a, if it's true, we should do a documentary on this. She was told that if she wanted to live, she should drop it. If she wants to live, she should drop it. I swear to God. This was the words from somebody in Pentagon that she knew that was a friend of her family. Yep, I believe it. And and uh, we're seeing it now, Mateen, firsthand is I was having a conversation this morning. I don't know how much you've been following about what's happening at Columbia University. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. students who are anti-genocide have been attacked with chemical weapons. And Columbia is blaming those students for even protesting. And it's really hit a lot of us. Things are weirder and worse than any of us know. Yeah. And this has been one gigantic cover-up by the American government, and they did not anticipate because they've, without a hitch, Vietnam, right, Afghanistan, Iraq, how many of these have we done? They can't, and by the way, Israel, this has been going on for way more than October 7th, obviously, right? I mean, it even predates 1948, but this this has been an ongoing genocide, and this is the first time it's being live streamed. And so they literally, you can see it. The Democrats are just digging their heels in and because they can't believe, they cannot believe that there's actually pushback. So things are going to get weirder. Things are going to get worse. And then I truly believe, Mateen, things are going to get better and the American empire will fall because it must. It's the only way out because they're in such big denial 
of the truth. I had a conversation on my Instagram comments. It was about South Africa, you know, the, the ICG. And then I, I, there was a video that I put up. A woman that I know started calling them, you know, buffoons. And then they are that, you know, how dare they? They're the most corrupt government. They have destroyed South Africa. This is a white South African woman that is saying this. And I was like, wow, why do you think all of this is happening? They are destroying the country. It's their country, first of all. You do realize that you're, as a white person, you're colonizing that. And you destroyed that country. So their infrastructure is, of course, fucked up. Because there was nothing left for them to to rape. Because of you. Because of you. But yeah. the idea of them not even realizing how they are affecting the world and yeah. the world around them here, it's astonishing. It's, it's mind-boggling. And the, the, honestly, the only way to do it is to to really to eradicate racism, first of all, and educate them. But the thing is, if they're not willing to educate themselves, if they don't allow themselves to see because it makes them uncomfortable, then, you know, what hope is there? That's the only way. And that's why here for the kids, we are the only anti-gun movement in America that's f- focused on eradicating white supremacy and racism. Because until and unless we eradicate white supremacy and racism, we will not eradicate guns in America. We will not eradicate war. We will not eradicate imperialism. We will not eradicate climate catastrophe. So all of these are connected and 100% racism, white supremacy, that's it. I, I, I really do see it that way now. It's like it's become so clear that every atrocity, all the wars, everything is for the sake of white supremacy. And, and every- money. Every big catastrophe that you're looking at is for white comfort. And until they face it and until they realize that the world is there to share. It is, including them. White people will not survive either. No, they're not going to survive. Nobody's going to survive this. Nobody's going to survive. All right. Thank you, Mateen. Thank you for your time, your wisdom, your love, your kindness, your humanity. We need more of you, Mateen. Thank you so much. Thank you for opening our eyes every day with every post. Your radical honesty word has stuck to my head and it has literally changed my life. Thank you for that. Oh, it's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mateen Malawizada is a celebrity makeup artist. You can follow him at It's Mateen. He's also the founder of Afghan Hands, a nonprofit that helps Afghan widows increase their independence and literacy. You can learn more about their mission at afghanhands.org. For more information on how you can get involved with Here for the Kids, please visit our website, here4thekids.com. There you can learn more about our mission, make a donation to help support our work, buy our merchandise, follow our socials, and sign up for our newsletter. Abolition Liberation Solidarity is a Here for the Kids production. Our producer and editor is Heath Rosella. I'm Syra Rao, co-founder of Here for the Kids and your host and executive producer. We will have new episodes every two weeks. Please join us again soon. <laughs>